You're listening to the Hayek Program podcast. This podcast includes audio from lectures, interviews, and discussions from scholars and visitors of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason University. To learn more about the Hayek Program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. To learn about graduate student fellowship opportunities with the Mercatus Center at George Mason University for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. Hello, my name is Christopher Coyne, and I'm the Associate Director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center. Today I'm joined by Dr. Jennifer Murash Shavili, who is an Associate Professor at the Graduate School of Public and International Affairs at the University of Pittsburgh. Hi, it's good to talk to you today. Um, I want to start broadly by talking about your general research interests, and I know you work in a, in a variety of areas, including formal and informal political institutions, issues of development in the political economy of development, uh, decentralization and, and local governance and post-conflict reconstruction, uh, and there's a lot to get into in each of those, and so I was hoping you could start by giving us a broad overview of some of your specific research projects in those areas. So my research interests uh, range from uh, work on informal customary uh, political institutions at the local level to things like bureaucracy at the national level, and I even touch on issues of international assistance uh, in, in countries affected by conflict. So at the local level, and, and really most of my work in, the, in recent years has focused on how people solve problems when governments have been unable or unwilling to do so. And in, I've looked at this issue in the context of Afghanistan, where there hasn't been much of a government uh, for the past 40 years or so. And the research uh, focuses primarily on customary authority because these are the uh, organizations who are most relevant to people's lives. And so uh, that's sort of the, one of the main thrusts of my research. I'm also interested in issues of bureaucracy in uh, post-conflict environments. And I know it sounds like a bit of a, uh, an anomaly to be thinking about bureaucratic institutions in states affected by conflict. But believe it or not, I, really be uh, I think that the, uh, the organization of the bureaucracy in states affected by conflict really affect outcomes and affect the ability of states to get on the right track in terms of development and, and um, in terms of uh, finding stability. And then, uh, of course, I've got a lot of work on property rights in post-conflict environments or conflict-affected states. And once again, this work focuses on the role of customary authority, which is often neglected in, in discussions about property rights. And all of this uh, research is tied into broader themes of political decentralization, institutional design. So there's a lot of fascinating work there and a lot of important work because you are fundamentally asking questions about the, uh, uh, the nature of societies, the nature of, of how people cooperate or, or engage in, in conflict. Uh, and of course, all those things flow into development, broadly speaking, but also human well-being. And so there's a lot of fascinating things there that I, I want to delve into in a little more detail. But before doing that, I, I was hoping to step back and, and have you talk a little bit about your background and how you uh, uh, kind of uh, evolved as a thinker and a scholar uh, and how you ended up asking these questions. And so I was hoping you tell us a little bit about, uh, let's start with your educational background. And I, I know you have an interdisciplinary background, and so can you tell us a little bit about that? Sure. Uh, I did my undergraduate work at Georgetown here in Washington. And uh, I focused on international politics with a heavy concentration on the politics of the former Soviet Union 
and I studied Russian, spent uh, some uh, semester overseas in Moscow. And uh, when I was finishing college, I applied to the Peace Corps. So uh, I studied in Moscow, uh, and uh, when I was in Moscow, the war in Chechnya kicked off. And this was around 1995, and I remember hearing about the war in Chechnya, and I thought, well, what is Chechnya? I studied Soviet politics or post-Soviet politics during that period, and we had not learned very much about the Muslim peoples of the former Soviet Union or about the minority populations who live there. So I became very interested in this question because I was already conversant in Russian and was living in Moscow at the time. So when I came back to Georgetown, I actually started studying Turkish because Turkish is uh, related to many of the languages spoken in uh, former Soviet Central Asia and the Caucasus. So I studied, I studied Turkish, um, became started taking courses in anthropology where there was some information available about uh, these different minority populations. And then I applied for the Peace Corps. And when I applied for the Peace Corps, they said, well, you could, you speak Russian, you can go anywhere you want in the former Soviet Union, we, you can go to Estonia tomorrow. And I said, is there anything in you know, different parts of, of the Soviet Union and uh, maybe sort of off the beaten path? And they said, well, you can go to Uzbekistan in September. I said, that sounds great, I'll go to Uzbekistan. So I went to Uzbekistan, and because uh, they, they gave us three months of intensive Uzbek training, so I, which actually is related to Turkish. So I sort of had a head start with Russian, Uzbek, and then after three months of intensive Uzbek speaking, of Uzbek, uh, uh, studying Uzbek, they sent me to a Tajik-speaking part of Uzbekistan. And Tajik is a dialect of Farsi. So I learned a really funny dialect of Farsi when I was in the Peace Corps. Uh, so I taught in a high school in Uzbekistan for two years, and when I lived in this community, it was the city of Samarkand, a beautiful city, it's actually the second largest city in the country, um, I was really taken aback by the community that I lived in. And communities in Uzbekistan are organized by what they call mahala. Mahala literally translates as community. And what struck me living in my mahala was the ability of people to overcome problems, the way they got together to do things. They would organize events, they would organize funerals, they would um, organize in kinds of informal microcredit when people needed them. And unlike a lot of developing countries which are confronted by weak state environments, Uzbekistan had a pretty strong state, a very strong purposeful state. And in fact, at the time, it was one of the most authoritarian states in the world. So there was a narrative that authoritarianism pushes out all of this, these social institutions, crushes them, the state is this totalizing force, but what I saw was something very different, was a real vibrancy in communities, um, neighbors who were close to one another, people solving problems, and this is actually what got me on my entire research trajectory was my time in the Peace Corps, living in communities and understanding how other people uh, come together to solve problems. So then even early on, you, you kind of were introduced without knowing it to this idea that outside perceptions of societies are oftentimes radically different from what's going on on the ground, which, as you mentioned, really underpins in some sense much of what you focused on since. Okay, so then from there, you went on to pursue your master's? Is that So from there, actually, after finishing the Peace Corps, I took a job at USAID in the Uzbek capital of Tashkent. And I spent three years managing the U.S. government's democracy and governance portfolio, focusing on things like civil society strengthening, human rights, 
um, media assistance, trying to build democracy, right? This was the late 90s, early 2000s. And uh, you know, everybody thought these Central Asian states were on the path to democracy. And so there was a lot of assistance given in this area. And it was pretty clear to me that the money was, it was very difficult. Uh, it was a very difficult authoritarian environment. And despite the fact that there was a lot of vibrance, vibrancy in the civil society, this really wasn't captured in the political institutions that um, the US government was trying to strengthen. So it was a pretty frustrating experience. Um, in terms of programmatic outcomes. But on the other hand, I was able to meet a lot of very inspiring people who were very engaged in their communities, trying to promote change. Um, a lot of government officials who actually cared quite a lot about the future of the country. Um, and so after that, I decided to go back to grad school because I was spending a lot of money on development and I really didn't have those theories of change, right? I didn't have an, a strong understanding of institutions and development, so I went back and did a PhD in political science at the University of Wisconsin. And so, interestingly, given your background, you had the exposure, the on-the-ground on exposure of kind of the interacting with people in, in their, you know, in the context-specific uh, 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 kind of institutions within which they act. And then you also had the experience in the bureaucratic setting of USAID. Um, and so I'm sure you saw an interesting contrast there, which we'll come back to later on, perhaps, when we have a broader discussion about aid and, and your experience uh, and, and kind of insights on that. And so your PhD work uh, uh, at Wisconsin, um, what, what was your focus of your dissertation uh, uh, that you did as part of your PhD? So I had originally gone there to study um, post-Soviet politics. And uh, I went to study, I think the field I had chosen was sort of nationalism. And there the things that I was really interested in were not captured by subfields in political science at the time, not adequately. So I was working, my, my first advisor, I was working with Mark Beisinger, who's a wonderful scholar of nationalism in the former Soviet Union. But I quickly realized that a lot of these debates about nationalism had been played out. Uh, we'd already sort of figured out, to a large degree, there was different debates about why the Soviet Union collapsed and what role nationalism played into it. And I didn't feel like a lot of the debates about nationalism captured very well what was happening in Central Asia. And a lot of the questions actually in political science were not capturing what I thought were the important dynamics of the region, which was on these issues of self-governance and community mobilization. And, and uh, so that actually took me to the world of ag agricultural economics and development economics, where I found people like Eleanor Ostrom, who I read in, in, in economics, but despite being a political scientist, I never engaged her in a political science department. And then after completing your degree, is that when you started at the University of Pittsburgh? Yeah, so actually while I was at uh, the University of Wisconsin, I had intended to focus on the post-Soviet states. I had uh, defended a dissertation prospectus that was comparing local governance, self-governance across Uzbekistan, Tajikistan, and Afghanistan. And I had started visiting Afghanistan in 2005 because I was reading about some of the community governance programs that were being implemented by donors, by the government, and I was re also reading about customary system, and it seemed to me awfully similar to what I ex had experienced in rural Uzbekistan and parts of rural Tajikistan where I had visited. So, uh, but unfortunately in 2005 there was a massive uprising um, of the people against the government of Uzbekistan. And after that, uh, many foreigners who were involved in democracy and governance assistance who had the kind of past that I had weren't able to return to the country. So I actually had dissertation research funding. Um, I had uh, defended a prospectus. I had grants. 
but I was not able to go to Uzbekistan. And actually, I actually had grant money to go to Afghanistan. Funders pulled that funding because they felt that the security environment uh, was not adequate and I wouldn't be safe. So I actually ended up giving up all of my grant money and uh, getting on a plane and just going to Afghanistan, where I was then able to find money to do research. So I actually ended up writing a dissertation on Afghanistan on customary and local governance. I did it with a wonderful research institution in uh, Kabul called the Afghanistan Research and Evaluation Unit, which is a fantastic local think tank based in Kabul, uh, and had a team of six fantastic research assistants that I worked with. We traveled throughout rural Afghanistan looking at local governance issues with a particular focus on what aid organizations were trying to do as well as the structure of um, local or indigenous customary institutions. So that was actually ended up being the focus of my dissertation. So what I ended up, even the country that I thought I would study, um, changed quite a lot. The topic actually remained quite the same. I was really fortunate to be able to focus on the, the issue that I cared about, just in a very different context. And was it then your dissertation work that led into your book on informal order and the state in Afghanistan? Yes, so the dissertation then became the book. Okay, and that book was published by Cambridge University Press in 2016 um, and is being um, published in paperback in August of, of 2018, so it will be um, available um, at a very reasonable price for, for people that are interested in learning about informal institutions, the interplay between those institutions and aid, uh, but also, uh, of course, all of those things in the context uh, uh, of Afghanistan. Um, I, I want to talk a little bit more about your findings as part of that research and some of those insights in the book. and so. Um, you know, you mentioned that, that kind of the, the focus is on um, aid organizations, so various types of aid, but also how those things interact and either complement or perhaps undermine uh, informal or customary orders that exist throughout Afghanistan. And can you say a little more about that with specific focus on some of the key insights about the interplay between those things and perhaps some of the context within which they complement each other or where aid undermines or, or harms uh, uh, informal or customary institutions? Sure. Uh, as I started doing the research, I was also colored by my experience working at an aid organization and feeling a little um, disillusioned, right, by that experience, thinking that aid may not be as effective as we might believe it to be. On the other hand, I was reading all of these reports coming out of Afghanistan about this massive World Bank project that was done in conjunction with the government of Afghanistan called the National Solidarity Program. And this program was to create up to 30,000 new community development councils in every village of rural Afghanistan. And as a former aid worker, I said, wow, this is amazing. This is, ex you know, if you were to ask me the kind of program that I would design, it would look something like this. And it was sort of trying to be based on, you know, customary norms. They were sort of co-opting words like shura which means council, and they were calling every village had a new shura um, to that was going to help them solve problems and distribute development assistance. And I was really excited to look at this. And uh, so when I started piloting my field research uh, in a couple of uh, districts outside of Kabul, it was became quickly apparent to me that the presence of aid, and at that time security was pretty good. This was like 2007. Um, that the presence of aid was pretty flimsy. And these new structures that the donors were very excited about um, did not have a lot of substance to them. 
And it was also quickly apparent that the real power brokers in communities were customary leaders. So after I, I had that experience in these couple of areas outside of Kabul, I retooled the research and I said, I'm not going to actually look at aid. I want to understand how villages are governed. And aid may play a role in that or it may not play a role in that. So I wanted to understand how people solve problems, uh, how villages are governed, how do people uh, find solutions when they can't turn to the state, or under what conditions do they turn to the state, and can aid be helpful in that process. So what I found was that um, it really was the customary system that was important. And it was important as, as I did this work not to privilege one organization over the other. I'd go to communities and try to understand who they turn to and why, rather than saying, tell me, this, tell me about your customary authorities. Because then there's a lot of desirability bias. People are going to tell you what they think you want to hear. And oftentimes when they saw me, I was a foreigner, I was an aid worker, so they would tell me all about their aid programs and how, how they transformed everything, and, and villages, they would roll out women and say, look at our new women's village council, don't you want to see the women? And uh, so I talked to the women, obviously, but it was pretty clear during the course of doing the research that the women didn't know about these aid projects that they were allegedly so involved in. And I remember one of my research assistants uh, that I worked with, and we did all of our interviews together. I had a research team because we had so many interviews that we would do in villages. And you they, the interviews also had to be segregated by gender. So you couldn't have w men interviewing women. So um, I remember one of my research assistants saying, these women don't have any information. And I said, what do you mean they don't have any information? They said, they don't know anything. I said, well, what do you mean they don't know anything? They know everything about what's going on in these communities. And she said, well, they don't know anything about these aid projects. So I said, of course they don't know anything about these aid projects. But the assumption was when, you know, a lot that my research assistants first had was that when they would meet these women, they were told that they were participants in this government, in this aid program, so of course they would have information. And then the information then became useless to them because they didn't have the information. And this was also about training research assistants, which was a mandate of the organization that I work with. So we talked a lot about how negative information is really useful information. The fact that they don't have information about this is really important to us. But they know a lot about what's going on. So let's talk about what our dependent, our, our dependent variable here, sort of these governance outcomes, what affects um, the ability of communities to solve those things. So we can actually cross out aid and these different aid organizations as being really important to that. Because if people don't know what it is, likely they're not turning to it to solve a problem. So that's sort of how we stumbled on that. So this is it's fascinating in itself, but it seems like even though the interviews and your research uh, when you're on the field is, is very context specific, uh, because each local community is going to have um, uh, kind of unique uh, practices, traditions, and so on that it follows, um, there are some general lessons that perhaps you can pull out. One of them is, is the point about aid that you just raised. But are there any other kind of broader lessons that you can highlight um, as it pertains to things like state building or you know, really what, what the, the, the U.S. government was, has been trying to do um, since the, the invasion um, following the 9-11 the attacks as, as part of the war on terror? And of course, that's a multifaceted effort to you know, uh, eradicate terrorists or potential terrorists. But as part of that broader project, the idea was to, you know, to nation build, to, to build an array of, of political, economic, and social institutions um, that allowed for economic development to bring gender equality. That was a big part of it, of course, these initiatives to empower women. 
And so I wonder if your research, um, you can discuss if, if there are any kind of broader general lessons or insights that, that you kind of were able to find. Sure. Uh, I think one of the, the biggest lessons was that um, we cannot think of societies recovering from conflict as tabula rasas. And so often when we think about, whether it's a humanitarian uh, disaster or any kind of uh, crisis, we think of the societies, especially ones that are, f are, are plagued by such prolonged conflict as Afghanistan. F Afghanistan for everybody became like blank slate. And so uh, oftentimes people think about these societies as where you have to build everything from scratch. That was not the case. And I think it, the, what the, the, the case of Afghanistan really illustrates is the resilience of uh, informal institutions and their ability to weather storms, very difficult storms over the course of several decades. And one of the, the important uh, theoretical pieces that I think I hope people take away from my work is when we talk about custom, we talk about tradition, we have to think about things that evolve over time. And so often when scholars talk about things like traditional authority or customary authority, they imagine something that's static. This is actually why I prefer the term custom over tradition. Tradition refers to the frozen yesterday. Custom is something that evolves. In the United States, we use customary law as the basis of our criminal law, right? We, we have uh, the common law, which is a form of customary law, and custom evolves. So whether it's Afghanistan, whether it's Iraq, whether it's Somalia or Yemen, where you have informal orders, and uh, informal orders that are based on tradition, we have to think of these things as dynamic and evolving and not static and, and, and frozen in time. And so often in Afghanistan, for example, people imagined the traditional authorities as people being stuck in the 1970s. But actually, they had evolved to become much more based in consensus. So another, I think, contribution uh, that my book makes is to actually have us open up the black box of custom. So often scholars, especially political scientists and the social scientists, obviously less so the, the anthropologists, although can, they, they consider themselves social scientists as well, but usually economists and political scientists, we, we take, there's sort of a unit homogeneity. We take traditional authority as sort of uh, a unit and analyze it. But infrequently do we actually open up the black box of that authority and say, what are the rules that govern these things? And so if you're comparing Iraq to Afghanistan, for example, a lot of the counterinsurgency strategy that became very popular in Afghanistan during the surge period in the, in the late, uh, around 2009, 2010, a lot of it was imported from Iraq. And this became a story about working with tribal elders, the, 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 the Sunni awakening in Iraq was based on this notion, for many at least, that you can work with these tribal elders, you can mobilize them against Al-Qaeda, and they'll become allies, right? Because these customary leaders have been used and abused. And uh, in Iraq, they have a very hierarchical tribal structure. Afghanistan has a much more egalitarian tribal structure. So when the US military was trying to aggregate, trying to, to work with um, informal order in Afghanistan, the same, the same way it, it did in Iraq, they found a very different outcome. They weren't able to mobilize them in the same way because they had a very flat structure in Afghanistan. So I think that's another really important thing to think about in terms of the organization of uh, these different uh, orders. Right. And so these are some important points. So you have, uh, on the one hand, you have this issue of the resilience of, of informal institutions, and so they can hold up much better than a lot of people would, would expect, even in the face of, of kind of severe shocks like conflict. 
but but the other important aspect of this, if I understand it, is that those informal uh, customary institutions are also constraints. But it's even more than that because they're on they're constraints for the ability uh, on the ability of outsiders to kind of shape the world that, uh, according to the, the way they want to shape it. But even more important, perhaps, they're not fixed constraints. As you pointed out, they're evolving and dynamic constraints. And so they're constantly changing over time, which makes it even harder for someone that's outside of that context to bring about change. Which leads me to my, my next question, which is related to this. And so what are the implications for, for outsiders? And I use that term broadly to refer to either people within the country that are outside of a society or uh, of foreigners to bring about change. Uh, uh, you know, we started by talking about how you worked in the aid community, and of course part of the, there's many motivations behind aid, uh, the provision of aid, but one of them is oftentimes to bring about changes to the status quo, presumably for the better. Uh, but it seems like your work in, uh, in Afghanistan would suggest that that is constrained um, in, a, in its ability to bring that, that, that change about. And so do you see it that way? Is there more to it than it's that? It's very difficult for outsiders to bring about that kind of change. It's very difficult for outsiders to understand what, what needs are of individuals in these kinds of very dy these dynamic conflict-affected societies. And in fact, I think Afghan people themselves have never really had a voice in deciding or discussing what role the state should have in their society. Since 2001, there was a bond process, there was a new constitution that was passed very, very quickly, which just recreated the old centralized government in Afghanistan. But um, aid in Afghanistan worked very in very similar ways to the way it worked in other countries, rebuilding national level institutions, um, but it was not very effective. Uh, tried to do a lot at the local level, wasn't very effective. And there are a number of reasons for that. One is, you know, the information issues and outsiders just don't necessarily have a good understanding of these local dynamics. But there was so much going on. I mean, a Afghanistan was so inundated with so much aid, so many different kinds of projects all at once, um, that it was, it, it seemed quite incoherent. Right. And so you have this issue of kind of the alignment between those projects and the local conditions, but then there's also just the matter of capacity, the ability to handle a massive inflow of money and other items associated with it. Right, and that, that wasn't just an Afghan issue, that was an American issue, that was a NATO issue. So a lot of times, uh, you know, it, there's, there's so much been written on this about the use and abuse of aid, um, not just, uh, you know, humanitarian or development assistance, but also military assistance, that the absorptive capacity wasn't there, but even U.S. government agencies couldn't monitor the money that it was spending. And then they're surprised that there's all this corruption going on, right? And so to, to, to Afghans, this was absurd. They would always say, well, you're funding the Taliban. These stories about the U.S., um, you know, became conspiracy theories that, well, of course the U.S. is supporting the Taliban. They're funding them. The U.S. wants the Taliban to have money. And uh, because so much assistance would end up in, in insurgent hands that to Afghans, this is like, why are you giving out this money? I think one of the hard things they had, they, they had a hard time wrapping their heads around the fact that, no, we were just incapable at monitoring what we were doing. We were spending much more money than we could ever spend. And that, that, that kind of problem was shocking to them. They couldn't imagine that we would be spending money that we couldn't monitor because in Afghanistan, there's so little money in the public coffers that people, I mean, pretty much know where that money's going, right? So they, they, they really couldn't imagine that we were just incompetent at uh, managing our aid. Right. 
So the, these are all, all these insights come out of your book, Informal Order and, and the State in Afghanistan. So it's crucial for understanding um, these and related issues. Now you're working on a, a, a series of, of new projects, both books and papers, uh, but you've also just carried out some recent field work that you just got back from a, a couple weeks ago. And so I was hoping you might tell us a little bit about your more recent field work um, and then perhaps lead into uh, discussing some of your current work and how those things fit together. Sure. So I just got back from uh, about six weeks of field research this summer. I did three weeks in Kyrgyzstan looking at governance issues. And um, that was actually part of a strategy uh, assessment that I've, I'm doing right now for uh, USAID. And uh, USAID has asked me to help them. Uh, and they have to ask academics every once in a while to give them an independent voice about how they should be spending resources on democracy assistance. And it's pretty clear, once again, in, in Kyrgyzstan, for example, it's a country, it's a very small country of about 6 million people, uh, where there's been vast amounts of aid spent over the past 25 years to strengthen national political institutions, and those political institutions are not in very good shape. And what's happened, and, and that particular place is the rise of Islamic forms of civic and social organizations, not Islamist groups, but sort of Islamic kinds of civil society, the, the resurrection of customary <laughs> forms of association. And that's not what USAID and other donors had planned, right? So I think it's kind of a surprise, uh, an outcome after a quarter century of providing all of this democracy assistance, that the most vibrant form of civil society that you find there are not the ones that were designed by the uh, donors. Maybe it's not a surprise to you, Chris, but I think to, to many people it's been a very surprising outcome because Kyrgyzstan, for those of you who don't know, was considered the island of democracy in Central Asia. It was considered the Switzerland of Central Asia, and things didn't necessarily end up this way. I'm also doing some work right now in Uzbekistan, doing some survey work, planning a lot of survey work. So Uzbekistan this is the country I was not able to return to for about 15 years. Lived there for five, but was unable to get back, and now the country's opened up, so I'm doing some survey work now on governance issues. Uh, once again, looking at uh, service provision, local governance, and I'm always, you know, my research is really focused on this interface between the lowest level of government and citizens. And so what, is this, what does this interaction look like? How do uh, citizens overcome collective action problems at the local level? How do they organize themselves? Uzbekistan also has a form of customary organization that's been completely co-opted by the government. Um, which has allowed, uh, which has actually encouraged real customary authority to dissimulate, or sort of to operate underground within the confines of the co-opted customary authority. So it's a very layered kind of situation. I don't really know enough about it because we're just starting to look at it right now. Uh, but it's a really exciting time to, uh, to be working on, on Uzbekistan because it's one of these countries where things actually look uh, pretty optimistic, and uh, aid organizations have not been involved, really, in that transition. So it's something that the government is trying to do. Um, has it, It's a transition that they've embarked in on their own, and now they're reaching out to outsiders to, to help do research and to do other things. Earlier on when we were talking about your background, you, you had mentioned uh, the work of Eleanor Ostrom, and, and so I, I wanted to return to that in the context of something you just said, which is this, um, this idea of private individuals coming together in a collective action type situation, figuring out ways, not perfect ways, and, and they're not always successful, but oftentimes they're more successful than theory would predict in generating positive outcomes. And one of the contexts, which at least theoretically is the 
kind of least likely to generate a cooperative outcome is what, what we refer to as public goods, uh, goods that are non-rivalrous and non-excludable. In several strands of your research, you have identified situations where individuals were able to come together and provide various public goods uh, within the context of a local community. And so I was wondering if you could just say a little bit about that because, um, again, while, while some people are familiar with the, the work of Ostroms and those that come out of that tradition, uh, it is still, at least for economists, I think, and I, I think I feel comfortable saying for many political scientists, kind of the situation that people point to where you need either a, a strong state or external support because left to their own devices, private people are, are just can't get this done. Right. I mean, the, the, there's so many examples that I can think of in terms of uh, provision of public goods. You know, dispute resolution, obviously, uh, local justice is an important source of order for people. Um, and so I look at both the scope and the limits. And I think it's really important for people to appreciate what communities can't do, what local orders can achieve, and what they cannot, where, where they struggle. And th that's, you know, one of the implications for, of my research for, you know, what, what role could the state have if it could play a positive role is really at the limits of what communities can do. And uh, it goes back to Ostrom's idea of this diagnostic approach that she takes in her work that we have to understand the capabilities of communities to solve problems, um, understand what they can do, but also understand their limitations. So dispute resolution is a big one. Um, you know, in Afghanistan and other parts of Central Asia, water, uh, managing uh, irrigation supplies. And that's not new. People like Robert Wade, you know, back in the 80s, um, he had a fantastic book called Village Republics that looked at this, uh, the ability of, of villages in India to solve uh, water disputes. And in fact, throughout Central Asia, they had this term, Mirab, which is the, the man who, who, or could be a woman, but the person who governs water, Mirab, Ab means water. And uh, you find this, this individual throughout the region, uh, they help villages manage irrigation systems. And this person gets a, a, a bit of uh, harvest based on how much uh, each village uh, is able to harvest each year. So if each village uh, is able to harvest more wheat, he gets more wheat. So he has sort of skin in the game uh, to encourage all of the villages that he works with uh, to, to distribute um, water among them. So you know, water, natural resources is a huge one, property. So uh, I've got a book with Ilya Murtazashvili on property issues and uh, uh, property rights in Afghanistan, uh, the book manuscript that we're working on right now that looks at customary forms of uh, dispute resolution and um, customary forms of land tenure in Afghanistan with big implications for other post-conflict states. And one of the stories we have there is that um, economists often talk about legal titling as sort of this panacea to, the, uh, to issues of economic development. And giving people legal titles isn't going to do very much if you don't have systems of adjudication if you don't have system, if you don't have a land cadaster, or if you don't have um, government that can really enforce laws fairly. So you give people a legal title that does absolutely nothing if you don't have a court system that can adjudicate, and then even a police, uh, police that can actually uh, enforce the, the rulings of the court. So without all of these things in place, just issuing legal titles at all, despite what Hernando de Soto might say, um, does not necessarily lead to economic uh, prosperity. And in fact, what we found in, in, in the case of Afghanistan was that customary, 
the customary f uh, forms of, of uh, uh, customary deeds and other informal forms of property rights were far more effective in um, securing individuals' uh, legal titles than um, other state-backed legal titles. So customary, customary legal titles were much more uh, effective than state-backed legal titles. So this is really fascinating because you know, one theme that emerges throughout your work, and I know you touched upon this earlier when we were talking about your book, Informal Order in the State in Afghanistan, and it, and it reappears here, is you are tackling the hard case in, in some sense. You know, it, it's easy to point out that in a developed country, people engage in, in self-governance and that that complements strong state institutions. That's the easy case. Still interesting as, as figuring out and, and analyzing how people cooperate. But to think about kind of the robustness of these informal arrangements and, and these customary arrangements in the face of conflict and post-conflict situation and to highlight both how they operate but also that they're pretty effective at operating, especially compared to the alternatives, is a, is a very powerful insight. Uh, because, uh, uh, of course, conceptually, p many people, many scholars believe these things can't work even in peacetime. And so to point, point this out in either conflict situations or, or post-conflict situations is a a very important insight, I think. And one thing that's really also important to highlight is attitudes towards the state. And I think that's something that outsiders really get wrong when they think about these conflict-affected societies. If we go back to theories of uh, state collapse, one of the things we know is predatory theories of the state. Why do, why do we see a lot of civil conflict? Well, if you, if you have to ask the civil conflict scholars, they'll tell you it's not necessarily ethnicity. Right? You have lots of societies where you have multi-ethnic societies. Just because people of different ethnic groups doesn't mean they're going to fight each other. It's usually when it's, it's it usually involves government predation. And so if we know government predation is the source of so much civil conflict, why on earth would state building be the solution to conflict? And I think this is the, one of the big questions that people need to be asking themselves, d uh, policymakers and so forth, as they go about building states is, Outsiders have this assumption that the state is this great thing for people because it's going to solve problems, it's going to give them stuff, it's going to help them live better lives. And yes, in, in, in an idealized world, yes, the state could do all of these things. But instead of taking uh, an idealized version of what the state could be, we, we fail to appreciate the kind of state most people in these societies have encountered. So if you take Iraq, right, under Saddam Hussein, or if you take Afghanistan under the communists and then under the Taliban leadership, these were not friendly states to most people. They used coercive authority, they abused people, they took away people's property, um, they were quite abusive. And so then to come into a society and say, we're going to build the state, we're going to give you government in a box, to most Afghans, to Iraqis, this is anathema. They don't want this, but we assume that the state is a good thing. Uh, most outsiders do. We want to build these kind of government institutions without thinking very carefully about the kind of state that we're introducing. And I think this is really important. We, we the international community uh, has democratic elections, assumes that you have an election for president, you got some blue ink on your finger, everybody's good to go, and we turn the page. You forget that those bureaucrats at the local level have been there for a while. Organization of government doesn't really change very much. In fact, there's a whole project I'm working now on, on bureaucratic legacies in Afghanistan, actually, and other conflict-affected states. Um, 
one of the issues that I found in Afghanistan, it sort of bookends this, this project I'm, I'm uh, on informal authority, is to look at the role of formal bureaucratic institutions on political outcomes. And what I found in Afghanistan, for example, is that the administration, the system of public administration hardly changed at all in the past 40 years. And in fact, they have a very Soviet-influenced, centralized bureaucratic system uh, with Soviet public financial management system, centralized budgeting, centralized ministries, governors at a, who are appointed by Kabul, who have very little local legitimacy. And citizens are experiencing the exact same thing that they experienced 40 years ago, which is some bureaucrat appointed from Kabul coming into their communities and saying, I'm your governor now, listen to me. Well, it's 40 years, people don't listen to the governor anymore. So we wonder why state building has not been effective. These, uh, these, these efforts to build states, we're not thinking about the legitimacy of these, these leaders or what kind of states we're actually building. So the other interesting theme that, again, this, this highlights, I think, throughout your work, all the way back to your time abroad in the Peace Corps, is this idea of what you referred to earlier, is that the world's not a blank slate. And so there, there are experiences, there's customs, which, again, evolve over time and change over time. But, but those things uh, are uh, important because they shape the way people perceive the world, how they operate in the world. Uh, and that's going to constrain what outsiders can do. And oftentimes, outsiders have by necessity because of course they have limited human reason the ability to understand specifics and the world's a complex system and so they impose simple solutions that's the idea of what well, we're going to impose legal titling on for property rights and as you pointed out well without a whole range of complementary institutions that's not going to work the way you want uh, and and i can identify and i, I want to get your thoughts on this and perhaps there's more than i'm missing but you can make the argument then that those efforts to do good, and so we can, we can assume pure benevolence on the part of people coming in from the outside for, for the sake of discussion, and assuming pure benevolence, those, solu those simple solutions can actually, number one, undermine existing governance practices, which as you pointed out are, are oftentimes, not always, but oftentimes working well. But it seems to me that the other thing that might happen is that you actually might turn people off to liberal democracy. And so that is, if, if the U.S. government or, or U.S. agencies come in, in in the name of spreading liberal democracy, capitalism, uh, and so on, and then given the experiences of people on the ground, as you pointed out, with, with predatory government institutions, they're not going to view what we call liberal democratic and, and liberal uh, ca capitalistic economic institutions, they're not going to view it that way. And so I can imagine that in many cases it would actually turn them off to those things. Um, do you think that's accurate or... It's, it's quite accurate. Um, just to give you some examples, a uh, big randomized controlled trial was done of a massive, this, this actually, this community development project that I talked about that was sponsored by the bank. Turns out, uh, I think much to the chagrin of many folks at the World Bank that, uh, and the Afghan ministry that supported this uh, program, is that governance outcomes in communities where this program was implemented were worse, worse than in communities where it wasn't implemented. Meaning that the program, this massive you know, $2 billion, $3 billion program actually undermined the ability of people to solve problems. And that's actually how governance was uh, measured in this particular work. Undermined, made it worse. That's benevolence. Second, in a lot of these places where I work, terms like gender, civil society, even the word democracy, have been completely undermined. 
because they, they become associated with donors, with the import of foreign ideas. Even though, you know, if we think about, as, as academics, we think about the term civil society, uh, we know what that means. You and I know what that means. If, if you're living in Kyrgyzstan, or if you're living in Kazakhstan, or Russia, or Afghanistan, you'll encounter, how will you encounter this term civil society? It's a, through a civil society strengthening program that's implemented by, I don't know, the British or the Americans to come build civil society. Rather than focusing on an outcome, donors then became focused on building these kind, the, the accoutrements of democracy, right? So let's build civil society. So let's create some NGOs. Um, let's, let's, uh, let's have gender equality. So let's create some gender NGOs. And what's happened is that, uh, you know, I even had people in Kyrgyzstan telling me this, don't use the word civil society anymore. It's a bad word. It means America. It means, and not that America's bad. It just means it's not ours. It's a foreign import. Just like a, uh, an Islamic organization from Kuwait, which is investing heavily in Kyrgyzstan, for example, is a foreign import. It's not theirs. It's someone else's idea. Um, so even the word democracy has become tainted as an ideological term rather than something that is uh, a liberal institution, right, that is there to solve problems or bring people together. Uh, the, these terms have become so ideologically loaded. Even the term gender, right, when you're talking about gender issues, it means women and it means a specific aspect of gender that outsiders believe needs to be promoted. So this is interesting. And civil society is kind of the perfect example of this because, you know, when you, the idea of designing or, or you know, um, kind of funding and creating civil society is an odd notion because, of course, when we think about it, at least, you know, in the Tocquevillian sense of civil society, the idea of, of people coming together voluntarily to solve collective action problems, and, and that can be very beneficial because, on the one hand, it, it, it kind of insulates you from the atomism of the market, so so being separate from people in some sense and, and, and working in typical market settings. But it also serves as a check on government and state predation because private individuals can come together to solve problems uh, that otherwise they would have to turn to government to do. So it necessarily limits the, the scale and scope of government, and, and that's very important. But as you point out, when you start kind of picking winners and funding certain groups in the name of civil society, you can see how it undermines those very things. That in people's minds, it kind of undermines the what we what we would argue are the desirable aspects of that. Um, and the and they're no longer sorry, they're no longer really interested in doing the kind of thing that you've just described, limiting the scope of the state, constraining the state. They actually often become in cahoots with the the state, or they become arms of donor agencies. So their objective then becomes to get the next grant rather than advocating. And these are, these are good people, right? Don't get me wrong, who come to this work with, with the best of intentions most frequently, um, but then they become captured by the aid system with which they're embedded, and their incentive is to keep their staff, to keep them going, um, and not really focused on the issues um, that motivated them to begin with. And of course, so that the, the takeaway in some sense that even under the first best assumption of, of benevolence and, and wanting to do good, uh, it's, you know, the, the charitable interpretation is really hard to do good. <laughs> the, the perhaps stronger claim is it's, it's almost not possible to do good on a grand scale. To, to achieve the kind of grand ends of redesigning a society are, are just not possible for a variety of, of 
uh, of reasons, both resource constraints, but more importantly, human reason, knowledge constraints, epistemic constraints. Um, that is our ability to design the world according to our kind of grand plan. Um, and when, when you start easing up that assumption of benevolence as a thought experiment, then it becomes even worse. Because there are, of course, a lot of good and well-intentioned people in the world, but of course there's people that want to game the system uh, to engage in fraud and so on. And as we were talking about earlier, when you drop a, a, a into a society a significant amount of resources where both the donor, uh, we had talked about the American government before, lacks the capacity to oversee it, but then on the ground they lack the capacity to see it. It's a recipe for you know, just resources flying everywhere uh, and, and you get systematic waste, fraud, and abuse with no real feedback loops, accountability, or, or anything along those yeah, lines. Yeah, I wrote a paper. It was called Gaming the State. And it was a paper that I, I looked at uh, Afghan uh, entrepreneurs. And they actually understood our procurement system far better than the people in the U.S. government who are responsible for managing, monitoring, and, and evaluating uh, U.S. government grants and contracts in Afghanistan. So I looked at their ability to manipulate our system legally. They weren't doing anything illegally. Um, they had lobbyists in Washington. You could look up in the federal acquisition, the, um, the uh, State Department database, the name is escaping me right now, where you can actually look up all of the, the, the lobbyists, foreign lobbyists who are registered in Washington. And, and many of these Afghans who are registered actually had contracting firms uh, who understood our procurement processes. Um, lots of stories in Afghanistan of, of Afghans understanding our systems. They had the incentives to understand our systems better than we did. So lots of good intentions, but, uh, and the other issue about design is who's designing, right? So someone in Washington thinking about what the ideal, or even people sitting in Bonn, the Bonn process, thinking about what political institutions in Afghanistan should look like, uh, became a very difficult thing. These were elites who were making pacts about how power should be distributed, and then they're surprised you know, 15, 20 years later that things didn't work out as they had imagined uh, because there was really never a debate um, about what role the state should have in society. And once again, when the focus becomes on state building, as it has in, in so many of these conflict-affected uh, places, we're not thinking about institutions that limit state power. What the international community tends to focus on is building state capacity. And when you start focusing on building state capacity, you end up enabling that same vicious cycle that caused conflict to begin with. Too rarely do outsiders take into account exactly what you've pointed out are, are those organizations and institutions that constrain the power of the state. In Afghanistan, the most important constraint on state power were these customary authorities at the local level. They were the ones who could tell the district governor, I'm not going to pay your bribes, or I'm just going to shirk. I'm not going to cooperate with you. I'm not going to give you information. I'm not going to give you what you want. Um, I'm not going to play your game. And by doing that, it was very sort of James Scott, you know, it was the art of resistance. They would just not pay attention. And the coercive capacity of the state was quite limited, so they could do it. Um, but that it meant the state was completely illegitimate. And so in so many contexts where the international community is involved in, in, in state building, they're not thinking about constraints. And that actually is what's so important to people, to their dignity, to their honor. Um, I had someone in Kyrgyzstan just a couple of weeks ago who said, the rise of ISIS and the rise of disillusionment with the state is emotional. It has to do with our dignity. It's very emotional for us. It's personal, and every family has a different story about how their rights were violated. 
And this is why the state is no longer relevant to us, he told me. And this is a story I've seen in so many places. And, and it's so, it's painful to watch the state capacity movement, to build the capacity of states. This is how states are going to achieve uh, development and, and, these, and these wonderful outcomes without thinking very seriously about the constraints on state power and how people experience the state. And it's something that I really try to focus in my work that's so very much based on ground-level insights to understand in a very interpretive way. Um, you know, although I, I, I use rational choice models in my work, I really firmly believe in interpretive methods, that you have to understand people's local meanings, their local understandings, how they see the world from their own perspective, a very emic perspective, um, how, what, what their meanings are. And to so many, it's the dignity, it's the violation of their rights by corrupt state authorities. And it's this corruption, it's the abuse by justice systems, it's abuse by militias that are affiliated with states, it's abuse by insurgents, it's a distrust of public institutions. And I'm talking about all of the Central Asian states that I've worked in, and Afghanistan. Um, and we, you know, we're unfortunately, we're beginning to see this in our own societies with a massive uh, decrease in trust in public institutions. Yeah, so it's a really important point that you raised. You raised several important points, but one of them I just wanted to highlight is this idea of interpretation. And, uh, uh, you know, so many people treat economic development, political development, institutional change as kind of a very clean, neat, linear, mechanical process. So you combine input A with input B and you get C. Um, but, but as you're pointing out, uh, uh, it's messy for a variety of reasons. And, and the one you, you highlighted, which I think is really important, is, is uh, subjectivism. Uh, that is the way people perceive the world. Uh, uh, the way, uh, you know, F.A. Hayek would talk about this is the idea that the facts of the social sciences, in contrast to the natural sciences, is what people know and think. So the way they perceive the world is going to shape how they perceive costs and benefits, which is why you just can't say, okay, all right, people have constraints. Now let's just write down what those constraints are, or it's easy to, to recognize them. Well, first you have to appreciate constraints, as you point out, but then the second aspect of that is kind of fleshing those out, actually thinking about what the, the, the constraints are, and that's going to depend on what people perceive uh, and how they perceive the world. And that's a really important point because there's the human element, how people, per you know, you talked about human dignity, uh, just how they perceive things and what they value and what they value to be human flourishing and, and all this. And it's a, it's a very important point, I think, an often over time, oftentimes overlooked point, especially in economics and I'd say political science too, but, you know, much of economics frames the world as kind of a grand allocation problem. We just need to figure out how to allocate scarce resources to their highest valued use. But all of the stuff that happens, you know, the, the very big black box that, that, that involves all of the various things that allows us to figure out how to allocate scarce resources, what the best use of those things are, how people want to live uh, and cooperate with other people are all things that, that are interesting uh, things to think about. I want to shift and, and ask you a, a, a question that stems out of all your research. And if you don't have an answer to it, I understand, because I think part of your research leads to the question that there may not be a clean answer to this, but I want to ask you nonetheless. If someone listened to, to everything you just talked about, and they, they might say to you, okay, we live in a world where we have an aid bureaucracy, we have government intervening abroad, and US government international organizations and whatnot. Appreciating all the things you've pointed out in, in, your, in your research program, what can be done? And let me state the question slightly differently um, to clarify. On the one hand, we have a, a 
appreciation for emergent orders, for an open-ended system, a complex system that we can't fully grasp. On the other hand, I, I think you would agree, uh, I'm of the position, I think you are as well, that we're not helpless to improve the world upon us. We can think about better ways to, to live both in our own society and perhaps to, to understand other societies as well. And so how do we navigate that? How do we navigate on the one hand our limited human reason, uh, uh, the, the p very real potential that in trying to help people we actually might harm them, with our desire to help people, with our desire to understand the world with the uh, goal of both understanding it but also potentially making marginal improvements. And so do you have any insight on how to navigate that kind of tension or potential tension between those things? Well, I would tell, I don't have an easy answer to that question. It's a big question. <laughs> the entire fields of economics and political science have been grappling with this. Um, you know, I think that we, you, another way to rephrase the question is can you engage, engage or not? Um, should aid, should we just, if we can't, if aid often causes harm, if aid often um, has these unintended consequences, should we be supporting aid? Um, should we engage with international actors? And uh, if, it's, if it's often counterproductive. And I've sort of come to the uncomfortable position, and it's a very uncomfortable position, but it's there. Aid exists. It's around us. It's just despite the rhetoric that we've heard in Washington over the past several months, aid budgets around the world have actually gone up in recent years, uh, especially the past year. Um, it's going to be there. So the question is, as an academic, for example, do I engage in those debates to make it more effective, even if I don't really believe at the end of the day it can be very effective, but to try to help redirect it away from some of the things that I know are really damaging, like the constant construction of parallel structures or this focus on state capacity. Those are things that I think are really, really damaging um, or just completely wasteful, right? Um, I had a colleague once at USAID, he's a very senior person at USAID, he said, if I hear the word capacity again, you know, I'm going to throw my chair out the window. Um, it became like a drinking game because it, doing projects just for capacity building meant, he, what he said, if I heard the word someone build capacity, it meant it was a waste of money. It meant they didn't know what they were talking about, they didn't know what they were doing, or they didn't know what they wanted. And if you, if you look at that word capacity and how much it's thrown around, anytime you see the word capacity, just cross out that program, right? Um, so those, those programs could be, um, you know, according to him, they're just wasteful. Maybe not harmful, wasteful. But there are ones that do cause harm, and I think it's those ones that seek to build state strength in so many of these environments, especially the ones affected by conflict. So one of the questions that does keep me up at night is, do I engage or not? I understand the aid bureaucracy. I worked in it. I understand how it works. I understand how programs work. I, I teach students at a policy school who want careers in this area. What do I tell them? Don't get a job, right? Uh, they're very motivated by helping people. There's got to be more to life than just doing research on the topic. So, I, I, you know, I'm still hopeful that there are constructive ways to engage. I'm very, very disappointed with the direction of aid agencies in recent years. I think you have organizations like USAID, which have become hopelessly bureaucratic, um, who are in need of a major overhaul, and I don't see that happening anytime soon, unfortunately. Um, often you know program officers who are so far removed from programs that they can't even if they had 
they're so far away they don't have information really about what's going on um, and who rely on so many systems and layers of contractors and subcontractors that it's costly, it's inefficient, it's bloated. Um, programs then become so diffuse. So um, I'm, I'm not very optimistic, but I try to engage. I try to be constructive. I think, especially working in a policy school, I think I do have a, an obligation to try to be constructive in some way. It doesn't always mean doing things, right? It often means saying no. It often means saying you shouldn't have these kinds of programs. All right, so if I'm understanding your position, it's given that we live in a world where we have aid, we have various government bureaucracies that are going to intervene in different ways. You know, one way to think about it, and which is I, I would think is the standard view, is let's think about what we're going to do. So what, well let's write down our ideal plan, and then we can figure out how to fund it and implement it. An alternative way to think about it is instead of kind of asking what, uh, what can we do ideally, um, let's think about what can we do given the constraints that we face, appreciating all the things you've pointed out. But as part of that, kind of the role of the analyst, the social scientist, um, is to point out how ha various harms might emerge and then kind of redirecting uh, programs away from that. And, th and that's a valuable role for the social scientist to play. Absolutely. So thinking about, especially helping people think through unintended consequences of desire to do good, right? So telling USAID that this term civil society that you've been using is a dirty word. It, it's not helping you. It's actually hurting you. Um, uh, you know, hoping that people listen. All right, and of course, there's a fundamental difference between delivering vaccines or water or food to people and trying to rebuild the nation. Those are very different. And, and that's tests. where those ideological institutions, um, where I think... I, I think what's happened in the past several years, these rollbacks of democracy that we've seen in different places, I hope is a wake-up call because d democratization was treated by so many social scientists, especially political scientists, um, still as this you know, desirable outcome, right? It almost became, uh, democratization became sort of the new modernization theory that states were really until uh, the election of Donald Trump for many of them, um, democratization was sort of ine inevitable. And uh, I think now that there's this, I don't know, you, you see it, right, in this literature that's emerging, democracies are dying. Um, seeing states on this sort of Hegelian path to some inevitable outcome, um, I'm glad that people are questioning that, right? Because how people in the rest of the world understood the terms that Americans use to describe political systems still remain quite foreign. It didn't mean that the concepts themselves were foreign, but especially the ways that we're describing them. It seems to me one other area where um, social scientists might be able to kind of be value-added in, in addition to the one we were just discussing is in terms of removing barriers that are harming other people. And so oftentimes, in, especially in developed countries, there's you know, what I think of as kind of low-hanging fruit various policies related to trade, various policies related to migration. And of course, those things are difficult to change because it's the normal democratic political process. But those are policies that at least on some margins you might be able to influence, um, uh, whether it's the way people think about them or actually getting the policy to change, which can improve human welfare in other countries. And it doesn't require you to intervene abroad. It doesn't require you to engage in nation building, to give aid to other countries. Um, but uh, oftentimes those policies can have uh, a real welfare effects. And so if you, you, know, if you remove bar domestic barriers in, in the developed country that, for instance, is precluding people in, in uh, developing countries from engaging in trade, from, from, from sending their products it's, or, or migrating, 
Um, even and even if it's marginal changes, it seems to me is another kind of area where social scientists can can have uh, influence. One last question for you, um, and uh, it's a broad one, but I'm curious about your your thoughts. And we've touched upon some of this in your own research, um, but are there any other kind of big research questions in political science or economics or the interplay between those two things that you see as kind of open questions that are um, of, of great importance uh, going forward. Um, you know, obviously you've, you've touched upon some of them with the informal institutions and, and the ability of private actors to resolve issues, but is there anything else you would kind of highlight that, that you think are, are areas uh, for research for other scholars, for graduate students, or anyone, anyone else? So I, I think one of the big issues, and, and not, it's not to say that it's understudied, but I think the way that economics and political science approaches them tends to be, um, sort of very arithmetic is issues about the rule of law. And yeah, I mean, there's so much written on the rule of law, but I'm just talking about justice and people's perceptions of justice. And what I've seen, you know, in my travels, in my field work is, you know, it's this theme that I brought up about these deep wounds that people have, especially wounds coming from the state. Um, and how do, how do individuals and communities address those issues in ways that don't necessarily involve the state? Um, so I don't think we're good, I don't want to say we're good, there's so much research out there, there's a lot of excellent research out there, but I think thinking about justice in terms of these kinds of grievances, something that's um, driving conflict in many places is one that I think we could do, especially on the economic side, um, bringing this emotion into it I think um, is, is a very important thing, taking this subjective work into account. Um, on the economic side, I still think there still needs to be a lot more field work done. Um, these are, you know, that's sort of a methodological point. Um, but it's an important point. I mean, many economists at least would either reject or not think about doing field work. Absolutely. And then when you do field work, um, it's, I, I, you know, I've had economists tell me that my work was anecdotes. Um, despite the fact that I really carefully analyze, prepare, pick field sites, train, uh, you know, draft very careful uh, field guides, uh, interview guides, code interviews, spend a lot of time. And I've written really crappy survey questions too. Um, so I do both qualitative and quantitative work. And I, I, you write a survey and people will believe the survey question um, much more than they will your qualitative research. Um, but it's sometimes it's very easy to come to conclusions using qualitative work uh, after just visiting several places. Um, so I'm just trying to think. You know, it's, it's, it's interesting also that, you know, many economists are, uh, uh, respond to field work the way you're just talking about it in terms of being anecdotal or kind of cherry-picking the conclusions because, of course, you can do all those things with highly aggregated statistics as well um, and, and data manipulation. But of course, the more important point is that, you know, highly aggregated statistics miss out on on the important aspects of subjective um, kind of uh, perceptions that you were highlighting before. And so, um, I agree with you that that's a very important uh, aspect methodologically for for economists to reconsider and take seriously. It's hard, you know. Field work's very hard, as you know. Field work is very hard, and something that I really do wish both political scientists and economists would revisit is this era, is notion of area studies. Um, that it's somehow outdated or passe. Without understanding this area, which I feel like I have, despite 20 years working in the region, probably eight years living in it, um, I feel like I still have a very superficial understanding of as an outsider. Um, 
we have a very different understanding of these places and able to compare them to others because of understanding languages. Under how can you have an emic understanding of something without understanding the language? Eleanor Ostrom in her work talked about the difference between de jure and de facto, right? Douglas North also talked about the same thing. One of the big questions of development is understanding this gap between the de facto and the de jure, right? Well, if you don't do field work, how do you know what the de jure how do you know what the de jure uh, practices are? How do you know? So how can we even evaluate? If that is the big gap in development, how can we understand it if we don't go and talk to people and understand what's actually happening informally? We know what the de facto laws are, but we don't actually know what the informal practices are. So there's a whole, that's a huge part of what development, um, the, the sort of puzzle of development, and yeah, we can do survey work on it. Of course, surveys capture a lot of these things. But oftentimes, when you're doing survey work, you're not necessarily sure what it is you're measuring because you don't have the local understandings of these specific terms, concepts, and ideas. So I've seen a lot of really bad survey questions. And I've designed plenty of bad survey questions myself, um, going into places thinking that I understand a concept, but really not understanding it. So under so doing that field work is so important to understand that gap. And it's what every development scholar, I mean, so many development scholars have emphasized as being very important. Um, and in terms of another topic that I think is really understudied uh, in development is bureaucracy. And uh, this is actually pointing towards my friends in political science. Um, there is no field of comparative public administration, comparative bureaucracy. It is a field, it exists in, uh, if you go to the American Society of Public Administration, ASPA, they have a very small comparative public administration section. That's, it's, it's not as theoretically rigorous as it used to be. Um, political science, there's almost no theories of comparative bureaucracy. There's a lot of Americanists who study bureaucracy in the United States and a lot of economists who study the bureaucracy in the United States. And there's lots of theories of the bureaucracy, right, that come both in economics and political science from the study of the US. But in political science, if you get outside of the advanced industrial countries, there is abs there's very little theory on this topic. And it is very important. And it remains an, it's a, such a neglected topic for these very um, sort of emic internal perspectives that get back to this issue of justice and uh, perceptions of injustice. Because how do people experience the state? People don't experience the state necessarily through democratization. People experience the, the state through their bureaucracy. And it's that civil servant that they're dealing with in their community who's going to shape their attitude towards the state. So what do political scientists and most economists do? They look at service provision. They don't actually look at how governments are organized. We don't do, just as the study of comparative economic systems uh, you know, had its heyday 20, 20 years ago, I would say the same is true for comparative bureaucratic systems. Once you get outside of Europe and the United States, there's very little scholarship on this topic, thinking about um, 
how bureaucratic systems work, how systems of public finance work, how systems of budgeting work. And I know to a lot of political scientists that may seem like a boring topic, but that is how people live, breathe, and die the state. It's not always about democratic institutions. It's not increasingly, actually. We know that now, right? It's not just about democracy, but all of political science became so obsessed. I don't want to create a straw man, right? But most of political science became so obsessed with democratization that they forgot about the execution of state power. And once you start thinking about the execution of state power and the bureaucracy, you have a very different, uh, you, you come to some very different conclusions about its efficacy. And so often, especially when you're looking at conflict-affected societies, developing countries, there's very little, there are very few studies of the bureaucracy and very few comparative studies of that topic. And so this comes back to what you were talking about earlier. You know, these things matter for state building, for um, government and governance issues. Um, and of course, it matters on a variety of margins, both internal to a, a country, but then of course the bureaucracy from the countries coming in from the outside to try to assist it. And so. Um, that's a, a great area for future research. Uh, Jennifer, I want to thank you for taking the time to talk with me today about all of these issues and for uh, uh, providing us with a lot to think about. So thank Thanks, you. Thanks, Chris. Great to be here. Thank you for listening to the Hayek Program podcast. To learn more about the research, scholars, and work of the Hayek program, visit hayek.mercatus.org. For more information about graduate student fellowship opportunities for students at Mason as well as at universities across the globe, please visit students.mercatus.org. We hope you recommend students to our programs or consider applying yourself.